morning. <laughs> I invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 21. As you're turning there, I uh, would like to give thanks to uh, your generosity, both in giving and in prayer. We see uh, the Lord answering a lot of prayers in Thailand, and we know it's because of churches like you uh, that pray regularly uh, for lives to be changed, as people in Thailand already have worshipped. <clears throat> uh, we believe that as they've sat under the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God, and as they've been part of a loving community, that uh, God continues to change lives. So thank you so much for giving us the opportunity uh, to go. We'll be heading back, uh, Lord willing, the end of June. This kind of weather is good preparation for going back. So uh, we're trying to get ready for it. As we have come to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verses 14 to 21, let me pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we would ask that you would bless us today uh, through the hearing of your word. Father, these are not just words. Uh, These are living, these are sound words. Father, we need the blessing of your Spirit. Uh, We know our hearts are going to be resistant to hearing uh, this word this morning. We're either going to think that we already have obeyed it completely, or we're going to think that it is true for someone else, but not necessarily for us. Father, help us to have hearts that are sensitive to our own sinfulness, our own rebellion, uh, but also hearts that are willing to be changed. And we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit might work through the word today to soften our heart to show us uh, the beauty of what Christ has done for us, so that as we consider uh, the beauty of what Christ has done and our sufficiency in Christ, that then we will be willing to go out and to proclaim uh, the name of Christ uh, wherever you have called us to go. And Father, we pray that as we proclaim Christ, that others might come to a saving knowledge, that might uh, find joy in living under submitting to uh, the reign of King Jesus. And we ask this in your Son's name. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 21 This is God's word. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's Word. Our text is a beautiful text which probably describes one of the most fundamental natures of who we are as Christians. As you read this text, you realize that one of the fundamental natures of a Christian is missional. A Christian, in essence, has been bought by the blood of Christ. They've been given a new status. They've been given a message to proclaim. And they've been people who have been sent out uh, to represent King Jesus in the world, wherever they are sent to go. This text is also one of the most difficult texts, perhaps, to accept and to receive and to obey. Where is the difficulty? Well, part of the difficulty lies in what some people have commented on. Novelist Sarah Vowell, in her book, Unfamiliar Fishes, uh, wrote about the missionary's role in the annexation of Hawaii in 1848. And one of the things that she mentions as as, uh, missionaries moved into Hawaii and Hawaii became uh, part of the United States, She wrote, missionary work is inherently patronizing to the host culture. Missions is a bunch of strangers showing up somewhere uninvited to inform the locals that they are wrong. Not sure if that's how you think about how missionaries 
uh, feel about their role or uninvited guests informing the locals that they're wrong. But certainly one of the obstacles when we look at our text today is this sense of if we have opinions that could be divisive, we should keep those opinions to ourselves. It's this cultural value in the United States and really throughout the world of tolerance. Uh, author D.A. Carson, Pastor D.A. Carson, wrote about how this definition of tolerance has changed. How years ago, uh, to, be, uh, toler- to be intolerant meant that even though you might have a difference of opinion, at least there would be some respect for the right to be heard, for the right to give your opinion. But today, any attempt uh, to win someone over, any attempt to persuade someone through your argument is immediately labeled as intolerant. Uh, So in some sense, there's a sense of uh, proclaiming the gospel and trying to win someone over to the truth of Christ is intolerant. Therefore, we should be quiet. Another barrier might just be that as we read the scripture and as we read about uh, this idea of being new creations in Christ, is that we look at ourselves or we look at other um, religious groups and we, we don't see that much of a marked difference. Maybe you look at a Buddhist or a Muslim person in Thailand and you look at their life and you think they live a pretty good life. Uh, in fact, they might even be more morally upright, apparently so, than, than others. Uh, sometimes in the church you might look at the, the, the Muslim and the Buddhist and think they're, they're a pretty good father, they're a pretty good mother, they're, they live a pretty good life, they have a pretty good family. So who are we to talk about this new creation when, in a sense, they look pretty good already? See... Paul wrote to a church in Corinth in about 56 AD that was also struggling with some of these same issues. Uh, The church at Corinth was a church that tolerated great uh, freedom of opinion. There was great tolerance of sexual and philosophical expression. It was a cultural which said that you had to bow and to give honor to the emperor. And so it was very easy for the church in Corinth to many times feel like an uninvited guest, that they were called to proclaim something that went directly against Uh, the spirit of their times. Our text gives us at least three reasons why we should be excited uh, to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. The first is this potential for gospel-created newness. Uh, The second is this high calling that we have received as Christians. And then this third is this ignition or this power that is within the gospel. Let's look at all three this morning. The first thing you notice in the text is there's this potential for gospel-created newness. You know, one of the things that Um, makes me most excited about proclaiming Christ in Thailand is we proclaim a message which is so different than what Thais would normally hear from Buddhism. Um, Every other religion says that religion can make you a little bit better. Uh, Religion can kind of take off those rough edges of your life and, and improve you a bit. But you notice in verse 17 it says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. In other words, verse 16 and 17 of our text Talk about a complete change that happens from the inside and then showing itself on the outside. Ezekiel 36 talks about this new change that happens as this heart of stone is changed into a heart of flesh and we're given a new spirit, one that that is willing and able and desirous uh, to obey God. C.S. Lewis talks about this when he writes about uh, are we just nice people or new men? Remember in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, Christ's aim is not to make us nice as if nasty people needed salvation and nice ones did not. The truth is that in God's eyes, both nasty and nice need saving. It costs God nothing, as far as we know, to create nice things. But to convert the rebellious wills of man cost him crucifixion. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce a better kind of man of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. Our text talks about the power of the gospel 
to produce this newness. You notice, uh, first of all, we have this new status with God. Uh, repeatedly in this text, it says we are reconciled with God. Remember, our fundamental problem is not that we're just a little bit broken or we're a little bit hurt. Remember, our fundamental problem is that because of Adam and Eve's sin, man stands in rebellion against God. There's a hostility between us and God. There's a division between us and God. Paul says in Ephesians, you know, we're without God and we're without hope in the world. And yet it's because of Jesus Christ's obedient life, it's because of his willing death on the cross that Jesus offers himself as this sin offering before God. And so that God, in acceptance of that sin offering, he takes away the hostility, he takes out the reason for the hostility between God and man so that we can be reconciled to God. There is no longer any hostility between God and man. So one of the things that we rejoice in in the gospel as we proclaim it is that we receive a brand new status, a brand new standing with God. The second thing of new that we receive from the gospel is this new attitude towards others. You look in the text, Paul says, you know, before I used to look at man from a natural perspective. Paul says prior to knowing Christ, it was easy for him with his moral education, with his moral uprightness, to kind of have a superior position as he looked upon others. But now because of the gospel, Paul talks about this change that has happened. He has this courage from the gospel, but he also has this humility from the gospel. He looks at people either as new creations in Christ or as people who have the potential of being a new creation in Christ. Therefore, Paul is filled with this tremendous hopefulness as he looks at even the most despairing of sinners, recognizing that in Christ they have potential for change. See, someone would say, well... I could believe all of this if I just saw more of this newness in the Christians around me. You know, Christians just seem so ordinary compared to everyone else. But, you know, the beauty of the gospel is there's this already and not yet sense of this new creation work, right? I mean, when we profess faith in Jesus Christ, immediately there is this new status that we are given with God. You know, we are declared new creations. We enter into a brand new state with God. We are wholly justified. Um, This old self has died and has been buried. We have died with Christ. We have risen with Christ. We are uh, seated with Christ. We are reigning with Christ. So in many sense, from the moment that you profess faith in Jesus Christ and you trust in Him as your Savior, all of this newness is already declared yours. That's why in Colossians 3.3, it says, you know, we are with Christ in glory. Just a tremendous way of thinking about who we are as this new status in Christ. And yet, remember, Paul also talks about how in, Colossi- in, in 2 Corinthians 4.16, how we are renewed day by day. So in one sense, yes, there's this already sense of new creation before God, and yet there's also this not yet sense of new creation. You know, Paul says that this gospel renews us day by day. In other words, we're going to spend all of our earthly life growing in what it's like to put off the old self, to put on the new There's going to be this day-by-day dying to self, living to Christ. There's going to be this day-by-day growing in new creation-like. So our prayer would be that from the moment you profess faith in Christ to the moment of your death, that you would be growing in Christ-likeness. So that on the day of your death, you would would look more like that new creation work than you did on the day that you profess faith in Christ. So this is the the gospel that we proclaim. It has the, the power to give us this this new status before God. It has this power to do this, this new work in our life. And, and again, that, that just staying at that point for a second, that should be something which should spur you and I on to want to proclaim Christ. Right? I mean, I mean if all we have to proclaim is that 
the gospel helps you to become a little bit better, then really I have nothing to offer different than what any of my Buddhist or Muslim or Mormon or Jehovah Witness neighbors have to offer. But what I find and what people find to be refreshing in the gospel is that it's this potential for newness. You know, this potential that my old record of unrighteousness can be done away with and I can stand as someone who was declared righteous in God's eyes. And that Holy Spirit, which led me to Christ now, is going to be changing me. So that, I mean, I remember like talking to We in the slum, and she was just talking about, even as a young Christian, only knowing Christ for two years, her articulation of this newness. She, you know, she says things like, Dave, I just look at my life completely different. That old past doesn't have to weigh me down. In Christ, there's a new change happening in me. And that is the potential in the gospel that we proclaim to people. As the time tomorrow when you, when you run across people at the store or at wherever you go through your daily life, that is the gospel power. Is that has the power to bring newness uh, to people. Um, not just better, but, but newness. The second thing you notice in the text is not just that the, the power or the potential of the gospel should spur you and I on to be ambassadors for Christ. You also notice in the text we've been given this high calling. When you, when you read that word in the text that Paul uses repeatedly, ambassador, what do you have in mind? Do you have uh, maybe someone overseas representing the United States who goes to state dinners, gets whisked to and fro in a limousine and has nice banquets? Is that kind of your picture of an ambassador? If it is, that's not what these first people would have heard. Um, these first audience in Corinth would have been thinking of these Roman um, legati, these, these ambassadors that were chosen by the emperor. It was a distinguished position uh, for, the ambas- for the emperor to choose you as an ambassador. He would have picked people uh, who would have been able to represent uh, the emperor. It would have been people who would have been sent to those foreign rebellious districts of the Roman emperor. And you would go there, you would speak on behalf of the emperor, your words would be the same as the emperor's words, your presence would be the same as if the emperor himself was standing there, and as you spoke, your words were expected to be received as if the emperor himself was uttering those words. It was, a, it was an honored position uh, to be in that place. And here Paul says that in Christ, because you've been reconciled to God, now you've been given this tremendous high calling. You notice the words that Paul uses? He uses words like entrusted, given. You know, think about, um, is something that you haven't earned or merited? If you've been entrusted or given something, it's it's something that um, you didn't deserve necessarily. Um, Maybe a Roman legate would have said, I deserve it because of my my social standing. But here, the beauty of the gospel is, is God, because we're in Christ, God gives this standing to the poorest of the poor, the richest of the rich, the one who has never been to school and educated, the one who has had a great education, the one who is articulate, the one who is unarticulate, the one who, who barely can utter words. And in Christ, every one of a believer has been given this tremendous calling. You've been entrusted, you've been given this, these words, this calling uh, to do. You know, think about the last time that you've been entrusted with something, whether it be money or a piece of property or maybe a secret. Um, When you're entrusted with something, you want to take that with care. You want to handle it with care. You want to be careful with it. Here, we've been given a calling. It's a high calling to be an ambassador. And what that means is that, first and foremost, every day, your primary calling is to be an ambassador. Yes, maybe God has blessed you with a job, Um, as an accountant or a job as an artist or a job as a a mom in the home. 
Those are, that's your work, that's your job. But your primary calling is to be an ambassador. So we always have to be thinking, if I'm a financial consultant, how do I fulfill and honor my calling to be an ambassador through the platform of being the financial consultant that God has gifted me to? So God has given all of us uh, this high calling to proclaim Christ. God has given you all different gifts, different talents, different roles, different platforms, but the calling is the same for every Christian. It's a high calling. It's also a vital calling. I mean, you think about if the ambassador, uh, what was his job? His job was to go and basically to speak to people who were in rebellion against the emperor. It was to say, Until, unless you submit, unless you change, uh, danger is on its way. The king will roll in with his army and his military forces and will force you to submit. There, there's punishment on the way. You think about our role as an ambassador, it's, it's a high calling, but it's also a vital calling. I mean, we're, we're saying to people, whether you know it or not, judgment is on its way. Uh, danger is on its way. You are eternally separated from God. And if you stay in that state, if you stay in rebellion against God, uh, there will be judgment on its way. So Paul is gripped here with this sense of, um, I have to tell, I must tell, I must warn people of the incoming judgment that is coming. You also notice in verse 20, it's a passionate calling. You notice in verse 20, Paul says, we implore you. That word in the Greek is really, we beg you. We, we beg you. And in 2 Corinthians twelve fifteen, Paul says, I'm willing to be spent and spend myself for your souls. In other words, this role of an ambassador is not some detached calling, some unemotional calling where you step in, you proclaim something, and you get out. Uh, this role of an ambassador is, is a high calling, it's a vital calling, but it's a passionate calling. And, and again, one of the things that I, I think we feel most as missionaries in Thailand is this real sense of urgency, <laughs> this real sense of, of passion that I, I have to proclaim to you. Many times we walk into the slums, even before we really know families, we'll, we'll say to them, would, would you mind if we would pray with you? And again, I've never had a Buddhist person say no to that. We've gone to many families and said, would you be willing to let us pray for your family? And then as we pray for their family, we begin in our prayer to talk about the greatness of our God, the, the plan of our God, uh, the danger of living apart from God, but also what Christ has done for them. And it, it's many times through those prayers where our passion, our, our desire, our urgency uh, to see people be reconciled to God comes out. But it also comes out in our pro- proclamation. Again, missionary work or the work of an ambassador is not a detached work. It's a fully engaged, passionate work. And finally, it's a dangerous calling. Um, in those days, in the Roman emperor, one of the easiest ways for you to show your, your dislike for the emperor or your, your rebellion to him was to take the ambassador and to cut him up and to send him back. Uh, that was your way of showing you didn't agree uh, with the words of the ambassador or with the policy of the emperor. Our role as ambassadors for Jesus Christ Uh, We proclaim a message which is both sweet and sour. There is a sweetness to the gospel message. As we talk about being children of God, living under Jesus, and and having Jesus reign and rule over your life, and the newness that Jesus can bring. But friends, there's also a sourness to the gospel. Because you notice in our passage, the whole issue of this passage is the issue of reconciliation, which means the fundamental primary problem of man is a problem of rebellion. In other words, it's very hard to speak to people and to say to people, your sin is not just breaking a rule. I mean, if I would go to a Buddhist person and say, you have committed bop, which is the word for sin, a Buddhist would never disagree with me. They say, yes, we've done bop. 
But in their mind, bop means mistakes. But when you say to a Buddhist person, you've not only made mistakes, you have also rebelled against the God that created you, the God that loves you, the God that owns you. You're in active rebellion. That's when people get their guard up. And you notice in this passage, we have a gospel message to proclaim that sin is essentially rebelling against God. And if, you, if we change that message, if we say, well, I don't want to use that word rebellion, I'll change it, I'll just say sin is loving things too much or, or sin is uh, mistakes, the Holy Spirit doesn't bless that. The Holy Spirit blesses the truth, and the Holy Spirit works through the truth proclaimed. And so part of our dangerous calling, whether it be Owensboro or Tokyo or Thailand, is we have to proclaim the full counsel of God, the full message of the truth that man stands in rebellion against God. This is, again, a reason why we should fulfill our role as ambassador of Jesus Christ. It is not just the potential and the power of the gospel message that should spur us on, but it's also the honor and the significance that God, because of our relationship with Jesus Christ, would deem us worthy and honored to go out as his ambassadors, to go to those places and to stand and proclaim this very message of Jesus Christ. Recent statistics show that about 80% of all missionaries go to places where missionaries already are. In 2005, Bill Bright did a survey for Campus Crusade, and he found that 55% of Christians believed, only 55% believed they were required to share their faith, and only 2% shared their faith on an active basis. In other words, if we're sitting here today and, and the power of the gospel to change lives hasn't really spurred us on to be ambassadors, and the, the sense of our status and our calling hasn't been enough to spur us on. What, what has the power to, to move what we know to be true into doxological action? What has the power to spur us on? And you notice in verse 14 and verse 21 is this beautiful gospel message. The late missionary to India, Leslie Newbigin, wrote of this. He said, The church's mission began as a radioactive fallout from an explosion of joy. Missions is acted out doxology. That is its deepest secret. In other words, what's going to take this doctrine of ours that we know to be true and move it into doxological action, doxological praise, doxological opening our mouths and proclaiming what we knew? And what moves doctrine into doxological action is this ignition which comes from the gospel. In other words, it's as we look at this gospel message, as we come to the table and we, we see the elements being visible signs of the gospel to us, it's only as you know that to be true and then as you treasure that, that you have this explosion of joy which then pushes you out into action. See, the gospel story is about this king that was willing to come down to live like the locals, to die for the very people who refused to acknowledge him as king. This king of kings came as an uninvited guest. He lived the perfect life. He died as the unhaunted king. And then he graciously offered reconciliation to the very people who rejected him. You notice in verse 14, Paul speaks of this. Paul says, the love of Christ controls us. And if you have studied this passage, you know there's debate. Is this Christ's love for me which controls me, or is it my love for Christ which compels me? Um, I tend to believe from this context that it's actually thinking about Christ's love for us, that as, as we meditate on Christ's great love for us, his willing obedience, his state of humiliation, his willing death, that as you think about Christ's 
love for you, that that becomes something which is very compelling. It pushes you out. It spurs you on. It's that explosion of joy which controls us, which moves us out. You notice that same gospel in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's what Luther calls this wondrous exchange. Um, and again, it's, it's another kind of hot topic right now is verse 21. What does that mean? Um, N.T. Wright and some of the new perspectives kind of view this as God's covenantal faithfulness being expressed uh, to man. Um, I guess I, I tend to believe that this is more a change in status than in 2 Corinthians 5.21, which you really have is this, this status being changed where we have the righteousness of God. You notice it says here, God made Christ who had no sin to be sin. Okay, well, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that Christ became a sinner. It doesn't mean that in Christ's state of humiliation on earth, there was ever a moment where Christ sinned. It's more what Isaiah 53.10 says, where Jesus Christ became a sin offering before God. That Jesus Christ became that perfect sin, sin offering, which was the propitiation for our sins, where the wrath of God is turned away from us, and now we are reconciled to God. God made Christ, who had no sin, to be sin, which makes us consider today, as we come to the table, the very depth of our sin. You know, God had to treat Jesus Christ, the sinless one, as one who had sinned. It took the obedient life of Jesus Christ, the sinless one, in order to pay for your sin and mine. As we come to the table today, consider the great depth of our sin. Sin is not just sinful actions. Sin is really not just even loving good things too much, although that is sin. But sin is active rebellion. As you come to the table today and we consider Jesus Christ, the perfect one, having to die for us, it forces us to consider, even this past week, how have I been rebelling against the God who has loved me? How have I been rebelling against Jesus Christ who has died for me? How have I showed my active rebellion against God? Where I know I've been bought with a price. I know I've been entrusted with a message. I know I've been given a high calling. And I know there's people all around me who need to hear that message of Christ in order to escape the coming judgment. And yet I have not opened my mouth. Again, that's not just sin. It's rebellion. And the table, as we consider what Christ has done for us, we consider the depth of our sin, the great rebellious nature of us, that we still struggle with rebellion. And yet, God made Christ who had no sin to be sin, so that in Him, in Christ, we, those who have saving faith, might become the righteousness of God. God imputes or recredits all of Christ's righteousness to us. Jesus Christ the King came to earth He was treated as the cursed rebel so that the cursed rebel can now be declared a co-heir with Christ, to reign with Christ. As we come to the table today, we're not only confronted with the great depth of our sin, we're also confronted with the breath of God's love for us shown shown by Christ. Meditate and consider today the great love of the Father for you, that Jesus Christ not only had to die for your sin, Jesus Christ was willing to die for your sin. Consider the great love of God. And to the degree today that we come to the table and we know this as not only to be true doctrinally to us, but as you come to the table and as you hold the elements today, it it moves your heart. You're, You're captured by that depth of love. It then produces that explosion of joy where tomorrow, this afternoon, this week, you you can't help but speak 
of the reign of King Jesus. You can't help but look on the places of Owensboro where today you don't see the reign of Christ and you want to see the reign of Christ because you know Christ has purchased those people. You can't help but speak to the degree that today we not only know what's happening at this table, we treasure it and it moves our heart. What would be the implications of this passage for us today as ambassadors? Number one, you notice in the text as you go to chapter 6, as Paul has talked about this being reconciled to God and being given this message, immediately in verse 6, he says, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. In other words, as Paul is looking out at this Corinthian church, he knows that in that church, there are some who are sitting in that fellowship who still are not reconciled to God. I don't know if there's anyone sitting here today who has come, who has come to worship maybe for the first time, who has never heard um, of what Christ has done for you, who is, when you look at the table, um, this doesn't mean anything to you personally. You don't know this, what Luther calls this wondrous exchange for you. Dear friend, don't, don't tarry. Don't wait. Don't think, I have 10 more years. I have 20 more years. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the favorable time. If you are hearing about the gospel for the first time today and you're hearing about the depth of your sin, but also the height of God's love for you, turn to Christ. Trust in Christ. Trust in Christ's obedience for you. Trust in Christ's meritorious death for you. Trust in Christ's records of of righteousness for you rather than your own. Turn today to Christ. Trust in Him. Now is the favorable time. But secondly, Christ died for us so that our attitudes towards others would change. One of the grandsons of those early missionaries to Hawaii, his name was Stanford Dole. And when Stanford Dole came back to Massachusetts, uh, he wrote a letter to his parents saying he wasn't going to go to seminary, he was going to go be an attorney. And his parents were shocked that he would choose to be an attorney rather than going into the gospel ministry. And he wrote them a letter, and he said in the letter, the reason why I think older missionaries have so little influence with the younger and the wilder part of people is because they thunder too much from the pulpit and they shun them too much in the affairs of daily life. One of the reasons why I get excited about uh, business as missions like Napada is um, even before we had an avenue for talking about Christ to many of these ladies who knit the handbags, is we spent incredible amounts of time with them. We spent a lot of time with them, uh, sewing with them, getting to know their families, um, weeping with them when they experience loss, eating with them, listening to their stories. And it was in that context of having lots of time together that we didn't feel so much like a bunch of uninvited guests showing up in Thailand. We heard them saying things like, we don't even know what you completely believe, but we're glad that you're here. We're glad that God sent you to our country. And it is part of this sense that you notice here with Paul that the gospel changes the way that we look at people. It gets rid of the sense of superiority. It, it cuts the sense of pride. We would have the tendency to look at people and say, look at the desperation that they're in. I would never be like that. I can never fall like that. I've never had that. It kind of cuts that all out. And we begin to look at people very graciously and very hopefully. A lot of people say to us, um, Thailand will never change. I hear people say all the time, you have a sex industry there, you have corruption there, it will never change. Uh, Just this past week in the Bangkok Post, um, the government said the corruption problem in Thailand is incurable. We proclaim a message where the gospel has the power to change. It had the power to change a city of Corinth. It had the power to change these believers. It has the power to bring change. But it's the gospel which makes us hopeful for people.
And finally, the ambassador's message, I believe, is best delivered through the context of suffering. If you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, listen to what Paul says to Timothy. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. In other words, Paul is saying to Timothy, the high calling, this holy calling you have received to proclaim the gospel, it is inextricably tied to sharing and suffering. In verse 14, you notice Paul says, one died for all, therefore in verse 15, so that we might no longer live for ourselves, but we might live for the one who died and was risen for us. There is a real pregnant statement to consider, right? For us to tease out individually and as families and corporately, What does it mean that we no longer live for ourselves? You know, when Paul says to Timothy that this holy calling is tied to suffering, he was writing to Timothy where Timothy was experiencing suffering both within the church and outside the church. But what about you and I? You know, we prayed this morning for Uzbekistan where um, people are being uh, persecuted for their faith. Uh, Two weeks ago I was in South Carolina at a church where I was at a church with an Indian pastor from India He showed a video clip where his co-pastors were on the street sharing tracks. As they were sharing, people were beating them with rods in India. So as soon as you open your mouth in a public place, there was a beating that was coming your way. And he said that is just the nature of doing mission work in India today. As you know, if you proclaim the gospel, you will get beaten. What about you and I in Owensboro? Russell Moore, in his book, Tempted and Tried, said the greatest temptation you are going to face in America is the temptation to self-protection, the temptation to feel the need to have safety and security in every situation. In other words, it's this great, the great suffering that you and I might feel in America is the suffering that you will face when you say no to having a self-centered, self-protective lifestyle. It's that suffering that you will face when you open yourself up to financial risk, relational risk, social risk, so that the name of Christ and the kingdom of Christ will be extended. David McCarthy in his book, The Good Life, says, Wealth is misused when it is a means of isolation and self-protection. The ordering of our possessions corresponds to an ordering of justice and love. Very, very interesting. He says, you know, the way that you order your possessions will have an impact on how you order justice and love. So our passage says, as we're controlled by the love of Christ, as that controls our heart, then that will have an impact on how you view your world, the issues of justice and love. And that will have a corresponding impact then on where you put your priorities with regard to your possessions. You'll flee from living a self-protective lifestyle, and you'll be people who are deeply engaged for the sake of the gospel. You know, what is, in a sense, we have to ask ourselves this morning, what is our pain tolerance for being an ambassador for Jesus Christ? And you may never take a bullet, take the side of a sword, or be beaten in Owensboro for Christ. But in our country, it might be that your blog is not commented on, your Facebook postings aren't liked, and you don't have a very large circle of friends in order to fulfill the gospel calling. So let's not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's not be ashamed uh, to bear testimony for what our Lord has done for us. Because as we proclaim Christ and as people are included in a loving community of God's people, uh, people's lives will be changed. People will come out of that old lifestyle and become new creations in Christ. And God will give you and I the joy of seeing the power of the gospel at work in and through our testimony. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. 
Father, we thank you as we prepare to come to the table. We are reminded that something had to be done for us that we couldn't do ourselves. Father, we were in active rebellion against you. We were slaves to sin. We were um, raising our fists in rebellion against you. And yet, when the kindness and love of Christ appeared, you saved us, not because of anything we have done, but because of your mercy and your grace. Father, we thank you for the appearance of your love and mercy in and through Jesus Christ. We thank you, Jesus Christ, for being willing to live that obedient life that you knew that we couldn't live. And then being willing to die the death that we should have died. And then being willing to give us all of this as the righteousness of Christ. Father, we thank you that today we stand as people who are new creations in Jesus Christ if we have professed and we trust in Jesus Christ our Savior. Father, as we come to the table, may your work of the Holy Spirit, may your Spirit spur us on today to treasure once again what you have done for us so that this week we can't but help but speak of this message to others. Father, kill the pride and the judgmental spirit that exists within our hearts where we have given up hope for people that you have not given up hope for. May you remind us that you have a great number of people, even in this city of Owensboro, who today are not walking in in giving you the honor that you deserve, but they will when they hear the message of Christ. Thank you for this church's love for the nations. Thank you for their willingness to send uh, people like ourselves to distant lands to stand as ambassadors for Christ there. Thank you that today New City Fellowship Church has already worshipped, that today you know, we've had over 50 professions of faith the last four years of people that have come out of darkness into the light because of this church's willingness to send us. Father, we thank you for the joy of seeing people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, may you give us the joy of seeing being, people being built up in Christ so that those who before were rebellious now are the ambassadors for Jesus Christ in very distant lands and right here in Owensboro. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen.